We are continuing our studies in the life of David and the heart of David as a man after God's own heart. And today we're looking at two chapters, and this episode has threefold story. So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 2, beginning with verse 12. You know, basically, our studies on David's story, and this, especially the Old Testament, biblical narratives, has certain characteristics that we need to be aware of. And in, even in terms of studying today's passage and stories, it, it will be very helpful. So let's go through this really briefly as an introduction. The first one is a biblical narratives depict the realities of life events as they are, and often even today, without any remarks of approval or disapproval of what happened. So we get sometimes confused um, when you see murder, uh, killings, and brutal violence war between the same nation, the civil war. And today, even uh, chapter 3, beginning of chapter 3, David's son's names were listed. Six sons from six different wives. What in the world is going on? Uh, we jump into the conclusion either maybe it's okay. It's all a different personal relative way. So even sometimes my marriage is not perfect and when I goof around with something, no, we need to stop there because the Bible, once again, depicts the narratives tell the story of what happened. That doesn't mean God upholds it and approves it. And, and later on, the reason why <clears throat> these narratives, uh, narratives leave the assessment evaluation to us, to as a hearer first, because the Old Testament narratives were written for hearing, not just reading, primarily hearing back then. <clears throat> but as we are hearing the stories, the implicit lessons are revealed more and more. So what's wrong with it? He's, he was king, or maybe he was allowed. Um, later on, when we look at David's suffering and pain, yes, it was much of it because of his sins, uh, especially with Bathsheba and Uriah, the famous incident. But because of these mixed up 
perspective in life with his marriages and family life, the deepest pain came from his dysfunctional family. A son killing um, another son because of that son raped his sister, and son revolting and actually uh, taking over David's kingdom and his life is in danger. All those things are happening. So hold on to that uh, immature conclusion about that. And another side of it is this. Biblical narratives do not teach a doctrine explicitly, rather they illustrate a doctrine implicitly. Even today, uh, unlike the discourse in Apostle Paul's letters typically, or the prophets, it doesn't render doctrinal teaching to us but it illustrates who God is in God's ways. And today we're going to ha have an illustration about the providence of sovereign God, that God mysteriously works in the way that he uses often good people, calls them, but at the same time, the evil deeds of the wicked man can be used by God. Sovereign providence. Thirdly, characters of biblical narratives are not like cartoon characters. So it's so much easier to pay attention when you, when you know oh, wh which one is the good guys and which one is the bad guy. You just root for the good guys, and good guys will be always good, and bad guys will be always bad. In real life, people are not like that. In real life, even more personally and closely, you and I are not like that. Sometimes we're bad, sometimes we're good, Sometimes we're mixed with different things. What do we learn from that? So when we pay attention to the characters, three characters we encounter, main characters, Abner, Joab, and David, we should do away with the simplistic mindset. This is a bad guy. This is a bad guy. Oh, David must be a good guy. Uh, we already know that David has a messed up family life. In the name of kings, uh, you know, in his heart, he adored and feared the Lord, but and yet, one thing that he went along with the flow of the day, many conquering kings were encouraged to take many wives and concubines as a sign of their power, prosperity. And David 
at least on that part, when with the flow. And obviously, back in the days, not from our point of view, they were so normal. David almost had a right to be that way. But and yet, that part will backfire on him later. The God's wisdom from Genesis to Revelation is always consistent. His way doesn't change, flip-flop. But and yet, David's shining side of the character which we need to follow in everyday life is just incredible as well today. And lastly, in all biblical, biblical narratives, God is the true main character and true main hero of that. So even today, we get to hear three stories, but the question back in our mind, my, our mind has to be, what is God like? What can we learn about God's ways? What is God doing in this and beneath what we can see? That should be the constant question for the reading scripture uh, in a right way. Otherwise, we come up with the very moralistic lessons of the stories. So as I mentioned, it's a long two chapters. And today, it will be difficult to read every aspect of it. So I'm going to have to fill you in as we read some parts of it. But let's start with uh, three stories. And the first story is the war. As a matter of fact, it's a civil war between the house of Saul and the house of David. In chapter 2, verse, beginning with verse 12, and all the way to chapter 3, verse 1. Steve just read, uh, our moderator, uh, 12 through verse 17. And that story is important to begin with. Remember, David King... David became king over Judah, southern part, one tribe, tribe of Judah from which he came from. But and yet the 11 other tribes in the northern part, the larger land, Abner, the commander of King Saul's army, had a military power. And he took the fourth and last son of King Saul and put him in as a king of Israel. He was a perfect king. The actual power uh, belonged to Abner. So they were going at it. And, and as, I, we, as we studied last week, the seven and a half years, a long, another long years of waiting on the Lord. And David literally didn't, didn't do anything to make things happen for his kingdom. He trusted God. But then all these people around him are doing things. One of the ongoing things was 
long, brutal civil war between uh, Abner's army, Israel's army, and, and David's commander, Joab's army, going at it each other. And as we listen to the scripture reading, the beginning of it is they were, uh, they had this face off in between the pole of Gibbon, and they could see each other. And one of the, the tradition of war in antiquity is having the champion fight first. We saw that in Goliath and David, right? But this time, Abner said, let the young men who are brave and, and trained and skillful in military art rise. Let them fight first. 12 versus 12. North versus south. Judah versus Israel. But they were vicious fighting. The scripture tells us that they grabbed each other's hair and stabbed on the side. So all 24 of them died. And the death of the young men intensified the passion. But David's army, remember from uh, the 400 men warriors and 600 men growing into that, uh, these men were not only skilled, but they've been fighting all these past 10 some years. They were brave, notoriously brave people and skilled. So they were chasing after uh, Abner's army. And that's the beginning of our reading in verse 18. Let's read it together. Verse 18. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there. Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Um, let me stop there and say a couple of things about Zeruiah. Zeruiah was David's sister, one of two sisters. And then he, she must be much older, way older, because his three sons were David's age. So he, his nephews were his age. So it's, uh, it's all related and entangled with the family relationships there. And then not only that, Abner knew Joab personally and of him, and they interacted with him. And then the story of Asahel begins. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner. And as, they, as he went, he turned neither to the right, right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand 
or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asael would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said to Asael, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? Oh, the tragedy of civil war. Abner didn't want to harm or kill Asael because of Joab. And he knew that Asael was a Joab's brother. Why is Asael determined to follow Abner? He could have followed someone else. But he was not only swift, he's a fast runner, but he was zeroed in. Why? Abner was a commander. If he captures or kills the commander of enemy's army, although it, it is the same Israel's, they could, he could make a really good, huge com- accomplishment and to get attention that he might be in limelight. Maybe he was a young man who's just driven by that kind of passion. So he kept on following. Abner is once again long-time commander, known as a really just naturally tough guy. He didn't want to heal Herman. Verse 23, but he refused to turn aside, therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear. Why? He didn't want to kill him. He just wanted to stop him so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. You could imagine that, right? It's because of the velocity of how fast he was running. Even though it was a butt of the spear, the butt of the spear actually went through his body and came out the other side. And everyone is... Can't believe this is happening. Stood still, north and south. And Joab and Abishai, two brothers, viciously following him, following Abner. And they gather around and defend together. And then Abner screams out, How long? Will you have your men follow the brothers, to pursue brothers? Meaning that we're the same people, right? And then Joseph, Joab finally come to his senses and blew the horn, which stopped everyone from fighting. And then we pick up verse 29. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah, they crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Manahaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down a Benjamin 
360 of Abner's men. You could see how courageous and how skilled David's warriors were. They lost, including Asael, 20, 20 men. But they killed 360 men. It continues in chapter, I mean, verse 32. When they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night. And the day broke upon them at Hebron. Chapter 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and house of the house of David. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. We could sense the tension building up. Now it's close to revealing the outcome. Maybe it was not only Joab becoming more confident, but then Abner begin to realize what's going on. They're, they're not going to make it going to this way. But it is a tragedy. And I, I think about you know, my mom's story, my dad's story. Both of them escaped from North Korea right before the war, Korean War. So I know the stories about uh, North communists coming in and then South uh, retreating all the way to Busan and the UN army uh, along with many different nations helped in their coming up. But in reality of all that is brother killing their own brothers. I didn't understand that when I was young. But now that I'm getting older, I understand now the tears and sorrows of my dad. He, he was the only one in his immediate family escaped. So every time when there's a story about North Korea, he will show tears. My dad was a strong, very uh, stern man and competent in his own things. And he looked like a giant to me. But every time when he became weak and, and showed tears, it's because of his brothers and sisters. This was going on. And you could sense the intense, intensity is building up. It's already personal civil war became even more personal not, to, not only to the soldiers, but especially to Joab and Abishai. But this doesn't go away. So that's why these stories are all connected, linked together. The second story is about the betrayal of Abner. Um, we're going to pick up verse 12. 
but let me set this up with this background. I think last week I shared this story briefly. Uh, it's worthwhile to share. Because Ishibosheth was a puppet king, that actual person who was in charge militarily and politically was Avner. Avner was doing and could have done anything that he wishes to do. So what was going on? He took one of Saul, King Saul's concubine by the name of Rizpah. What was the big deal about that? It wasn't about Avner's uh, interest in woman or lust at all. It was his symbolic act of taking former king's concubine to equate his status and power with loyalty. But obviously, Ishibosheth didn't like it. And as a king, he confronted him. Why have you gone into Rispa, the concubine of my father? So that, that is a Hebrew uh, phrase or expression of sexual intercourse, obviously. Why, why having an affair? And then instead of uh, giving poor excuses, he goes in rage. And he says, am I dog's head of Israel? Do you know I could turn you into David's hand even right this moment? You don't have an appreciation. I might as well, as God has promised, promised David, notice that it, he's using God language, religious, spiritual language, that he would give him kingdom from Dan to Beersheba, from, from the top of the land, the, very, the, the lowest part of their land. I might as well do that. Ishibosheth couldn't say anything because he feared him. In verse 12, we pick up from there. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hands shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, or Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face, then, save, then David sent messengers to Ishibosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishibosheth sent and took her from her from her husband Partiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim, 
And the, Abner said to him, go return, and he returned. Oh, heartbreaking. So as you remember the early stories, King David, I mean, the King Saul was trying to put his control over David. One of his schemes was giving David his son, I mean, his daughter, because his daughter, Michael, was already in love with him. He adored him, and he gave him. And then in so doing, he said, I have one condition. You bring 100 foreskins of Philistines. Remember, we learned that. Uh, so basically, kill 100 Philistine soldiers and bring them to me. But Israelites are circumcised. Philistines are not circumcised. When, they, when David brings a foreskins, they know that it's not Israelite, and therefore it's a proof that he won. It's like a brutal, vicious uh, thing. He actually did that. In, 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 in return, he finally got Michael. So now the question is, I told you that in the beginning of chapter 3, there's a list of six sons and six from six different wives. What's going on, David? Does, do, you, do you need another, another wife? Actually, this one is not about wife. Or even he misses Michael. Michael probably still loved him. But David, this was his prudent thinking, his sound mind in a way that as the leader of the kingdom of God's people, I need to bring the Israelites together. And his, his, his nation, Judah, was only one tribe. How am I going to win the hearts of 11 other tribes? And they used to be under King Saul's rule, right? But if I bring, and then I don't have animosity against King Saul's house, and if I truly show that Michael is part of my kingdom now, perhaps this is probably the most unifying way. It's a prudent uh, reason for that. But anyway, I think I went ahead a little bit. Let's read the rest of it. Verse 20. And Abner came with the 20 men to David at Hebron. David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord, the king, that they may be a covenant. They may make a covenant with you and that you may reign over all that your hearts desire. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. So David, from David's point of view, he's constantly concerned about 
having all the people of Israel, not just a part of the tribes. So he's having this big picture in mind. But Ishibosheth, as a puppet king, is going along with whatever Abner says. Abner, probably years of long, brutal war that he's been losing, they come to the senses. Abner was an opportunist. He saw the future was not with Israel, but was with David and kingdom of Judah. So he said, he basically is saying, oh, I might as well make a move right now. But you see this, that his front, even with, <laughs> even with a king, even with the David, um, his front was religious, spiritual, torn of it. And he uses the name of God a lot. But in reality, his true concern was for himself. So I want to make sure that we understand clearly. The reason why I shared about biblical narratives and the characters of biblical narratives are not like a cartoon character. Abner, bad guy. David, good guy. Abner was a, such a loyal uh, commander for a long time. So he had a mixed motive here. Loyalty to the house of Saul for God, even so. But and yet he was concerned about his ambition, his future, his status. So when you, are, have, when you have that kind of mixed motive, it's so easy to rationalize yourself, to come to believe that my reasons are solid. In the end, in spite of Abner's all the mixed motive, it was not even clear to him what was his true motive. What came out was his self-centered ambition took over. That he came out as having no interest for God's kingdom, God's will, God's righteousness, God's justice at all. Just want you to know that he wasn't always like that. We could become like him unless we become careful. So there's a third and last story, which is the murder of Abner, by Joab, uh, his revenge, actually. Verse 26 of chapter 3. When Joab came out from David's presence, I need to give a, a little bit of background leading to this. So Abner went in peace. He's, you know, having good feast, everybody's feeling warm and fuzzy, and they're leaving in peace. And right around the time Joab came back from his mission, and then he's furious. To David, his king, 
They're close enough to maybe confront it that way, but he was going at it. What have you done? Why have you let him go? Don't you know? Abner has ulterior motive. He came to check you out and spy things all around. You should have just get rid of him. Why did you let him go? And then he sends out uh, a spy, a, a messenger. That's what verse 26 starts. When Jacob, oh, I'm sorry, when jo Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of gate of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Jacob and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle of Gibeon. Verse 31, Then the David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And King David followed the bier. They buried, they buried Abner at Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound. Your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me, and more, more, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And the people took note of it, especially people of Israel, the northern part, and it pleased them as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had, it had not been king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, 
Do you not know that a prince and great man has fallen, the prince and great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. What are stories? Okay. This is a detail of gruesome brutality and all these ugly things that we wouldn't care about our little children to hear. This is no way PG at all, right? What's going on? In, in, in Joseph's front this time, similar to uh, Avner, but Joseph's, uh, jo- Joab's a little different. Joab was such a loyal and huge asset to David and David's kingdom, David's leadership from day one. And perhaps without Joab, David could not have succeeded in so many different campaigns. And he was a diehard, loyal warrior and friend. But everything Joab did, check this out, was according to his self rule. David uh, wanted to follow God in God's way. David waited on the Lord. David pursued the way of God, sometimes which is not that efficient way. But a lot of times when Joab took things under his control, his stubborn will, by the way, this is the American way. Frank Sinatra's song is popular because it reflects the hearts of typical Americans. I did it my way. Whatever happened, good and bad, difficult times, I did it my way. Joab's favorite song would probably. I did it my way. So when he was not in line with God's heart and God's way, he was actually harmful, even though at that moment it seemed to be helpful to David. And not only this case, he thought that killing Abner was good for my king David and the nation of Judah, and everyone would be happy. That's my conclusion. And besides, he killed my, he murdered my brother. Actually, there was not murder, it was a casualty of war, but he justified it. It was his rule. But there's sometimes that uh, King David was uh, like uh, being sentimental back in, I mean, the way in the future, and that 
his son Absalom was uh, revolted. And he died, and he was moping around. Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab actually confronts him. It didn't sit right with his way. But actually, what Joab was doing was the right thing to do in the sight of God. Get up and shake up. You need to take care of the kingdom. But one, another incident, when Bathsheba uh, adultery incident was, was in the uh, hidden behind the scene, and to cover of his sin, David sends Uriah to the battle with the scheme, and he writes a letter to Joab, commander, and it, it's a kind of cruel way. Give that letter to Uriah. Uriah, man of integrity, does not open up the letter and give it to Joab. And if Joab actually followed God's way, he probably confront his king. But he gladly went along with and killing, killing Uriah in the battle by pulling back his soldiers. In the fierce of battle, Uriah being left alone, he died. So look, look at David here. David refused to be part of the well-meaning people. These are people who are saying, I'm, I'm on your side. And they, David genuinely grieved for Abner. Why? This is the part that we need to see a man after God's own heart. David's life center was on him, unlike, the, unlike Abner or unlike Joab. His center was God, who's righteous, who's just. And he will not go against his center. He feared the Lord who is righteous, who is just. I think... Um, there's so many more things to be said, but let's keep it simple. My time's almost up, so I want to give you three key lessons from all these two stories. Number one, unlike Abner, we are to be vigilant against second things become, becoming first thing in life. What are the second things? Our ambition and success and our recognition, these are not bad. But if we get mixed up with these second things and put those things in the first, what happens is the whole picture of our life becomes self-centered. Is it God-centered or is it self-centered? Proverbs 28, 25-26 says, A greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he, walk, he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Brothers and sisters, notice that it doesn't take an evil man to be an opportunist. To damage the kingdom of God. 
But it's a subtle self-rationalization. Oh, my, my heart aches when I think about not just, you know, some part of the bad uh, America, churches in, in our neighborhood, including our church, but the, the subtle undertone of the Western Christianity is about what can God do to me, for me? How can God bless me? <coughs> or it could apply to church as well. How can our church grow? How can our, our church be recognized or different, uniquely different from our mission and vision? How can we improve? How can we better ourselves? How can I be better Christian, better CEO, better Christian leader, better Christian teacher, better Christian businessman? Nothing wrong with that, is it? Or by in itself, it's nothing wrong. But when our motives get mixed up, when our priorities get mixed up, God becomes a useful God. A means to an end. And then we say, we do this for God. By any means. But God's way, the means, are not unrighteous, unjust way. What does it take? We need pre-decide commitment. Following Jesus and Jesus' words, way as our ultimate priority. Not just one of the priorities. Everybody wants to be a good Christian, right? But if you think about, will your Christian following, so following Jesus, become your uttermost priority, the first thing in your life? Most treasured joy, is it Jesus or is it your success? Is it your happiness or God's reign on you? Number two lesson, this time Joab, lesson from, lesson from Joab. Unlike Joab, we are to humbly do things God's way rather than stubbornly doing things my way, even in doing good things. Proverbs 3, 7 says, Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. James chapter 4, verse 7 through 8, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So many of us who are very sure of our ways, this is a time we need to soften our hearts and submit to God. And it takes with, takes first repenting, cleansing our ways. Fall flat. 
bowing down, submitting to God's way and say, I was wrong, please forgive me. I will not go my way. I will not insist my stubborn way anymore. Whatever your word says, Lord, whatever your way is, I will align myself. Do you do that? Do you know in so doing that you get most joyful life and happiness and you experience most blessings from God in return? These are two different separate ways. Therefore, we are to be loyal, not to men, not to organization, but to God first. And let God's, your loyalty to God order everything else. Number three and final lesson. Like David this time, we are to uphold righteousness and justice in all our ways, even when it benefits us to overlook injustice and unrighteousness. Psalm 33, verse 4 to 5. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Remember a couple of weeks ago I said, uh, I'm concerned about American evangelicalism. Uh, you know, to say the main line is white American evangelism, evangelicalism, but it, to be honest, it's all people who are saying I'm evangelical. If we neglect the righteousness and justice, it is not God's desire. And to see God's favor and God's blessings upon this, this nation for the prosperity is wrong. What do you desire, God, to see in us? Seeing me. So David's secret is not complex. Secret is very, very simple. David cared for God's heart and God's ways more than anything else. So he would fear the Lord, even all these well-meaning people, I'm on your side and bringing shabby, unrighteous, unjust ways to benefit him, he refused no, 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 thousand times no. Can you do that? Will you do that? You know what that requires? On that moment, you cannot do that. I cannot do that. Our center has to be changed. Our life center has to be God. I conclude with this. Eugene Peterson once again, it's from Leap Over a Wall. It's a very insightful book and very helpful and even meditating on this passage. He writes, why does the Bible have this stuff in it? If God is working here, speaking here, why don't things work out better? Why don't people behave better? That's my question. Why are Born has like Joab and Abner allowed to take up so much space. If God is at the center of things, 
Why does history get so messed up? The answer is quite obvious, even if uncongenial. This is the context and company in which God chooses to work out our salvation. Abner and Joab are also in this story. And the sooner we get, to use, we get used to, to it, the better. We found wonderful companions in this way of faith and discipleship, men, of, men and women of grace and beauty, loyalty and prayer, Jonathan's and Abigail's, Samuel's and Ahimelech's, but we also find ourselves joined by Abner's and Joab's under many and various aliases. Because they think they're on our side, we also assume that they are. But that assumption gets no biblical confirmation. Abner and Joab bear watching. Means are important. God's work can't be done other than in God's way. Exploitation, Abner, and violence, Joab, aren't God's way. What might be your takeaway, our church's takeaway, We're living in, in our very everyday life, maybe in your work, in your business, the, there are messed up people and boneheads with you. And we are not even living in a perfect world, even if we do God's work, God, God's ministry, we say, the gospel work. And it takes the vigilance, a singleness of an eye, looking at God's heart, then make that God's heart, our singleness of eye, and focus on that to be our center. And then we'll come out at the end more joyful, more blessed. And even what we are going through in city zoning issue, let's keep our focus on God's heart, God's character. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this timely reminder for many of us. Uh, some of us perhaps been discouraged with the messiness of our lives and things don't go well and things are so mixed up and messed up and the brokenness everywhere. Our husbands don't act up. Our wives don't cooperate. Our kids misbehave. Our workplaces are just not right at times. But amidst of all this brokenness and messiness, you work out our salvation, we realize. So we look to you and teach us to have a singleness of an eye in following you and following God's way. 
we pray with earnest desire that you will teach us on these three lessons deeply enough that every day that we will live by faith and you being in the center. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.